0: John Ziegler here, excited to announce that we have our first sponsor of the Individual One podcast. Now, as you'd probably expect, I do not do endorsements unless I actually use the product. And I just started using this one. It's Imbue CBD. If you're a golf fan like I am, and you've probably read about how CBD is all the rage with all sorts of respected people raving about the various positive physical aspects of CBD, especially among people like me who are, let's face it, starting to feel the impact of aging. Recently, I started trying multiple products from Imbue CBD. And I can already tell that, among other things, I am for sure sleeping more soundly. And my wife says she loves the Imbue CBD facial cream. Although, to be honest, she doesn't need it. In case you haven't heard, CBD is the powerful extract from the hemp version of cannabis. And while it may offer many of the health benefits of marijuana, there's no high, it's legal, and doesn't require a prescription. The source I trust for CBD is Imbue CBD. This is a top-of-the-line product and classy in every way. Consequently, Imbue CBD is not inexpensive, but I got you a discount to explore all the many ways CBD might be able to help you. Go to imbuecbd.com and get 25% off when you enter John Z. Again, enter John Z for 25% off at imbuecbd.com. That's imbuecbd.com. Promo code John Z. This is episode number 102 of the Individual One podcast. For the record, individual number one is President Donald J. Trump. And I am your host, John Ziegler. We are broadcasting bravely from Los Angeles, California and distributed internationally by the Global Story Network. This is the critically acclaimed program, which takes an honest and hard look at the presidency of Donald J. Trump from a conservative perspective, because unfortunately no one else is willing or able to tell the real truth about him. And unlike the corporate media, we here at the Individual One podcast have most definitely not been compromised or co-opted, especially in these unprecedented and troubling times. Uh, Welcome to the program. Please subscribe, rate, review and share it via social media and follow us on Twitter at individual, the number one pod. That's at individual, the number one pod, as has been the case now for weeks. We begin with a recap of the latest coronavirus statistics worldwide. We are now over two million confirmed cases with over one hundred and thirty thousand deaths. Both of those numbers continue to rise uh, rather quickly, although there is some signs of hope. In the United States, we now have over 620,000 cases, by far the most cases in the world, although we've also done the most testing, with over 27,500 deaths. Those are both world highs. The situation is still bad, but improving in Spain and in Italy. The United Kingdom has been hit hard with deaths. They have less than 100,000 cases as of this taping, but already 13,000 deaths, and you have to wonder whether or not London and New York City are having equal impact on uh, the United Kingdom and the United States of America. Canada is faring much better so far with 28,000 cases and less than 1,000 deaths. A lot of eyes, including mine, have been on Sweden because of their very laissez-faire attitude towards, I shouldn't say attitude, their, their uh, willingness to enforce these rules voluntarily rather than uh, a, a, by a saber from the government. Uh, and in Sweden, they have only 12,000 cases confirmed, but they have 1,200 deaths, which is a very high rate of death in comparison to the confirmed cases. Now, I don't pretend to have any great insight into what's happening in Sweden, although we apparently have listeners there because I got a Facebook message from Sweden. Uh, we, and this is just one person's opinion, but they, they were feeling as if their country was handling this very well. Uh, it's unfortunate that they are having some deaths, uh, but the, that uh, in, by and large, the people of Sweden are just handling this the best way that they can. They feel like they're handling it the right way and that they're going to get through this. We don't have enough data to know whether or not that was the right path. Uh, but uh, I, I still believe that the the debate is very much open here. Uh, because even though you might have more deaths at the beginning, you can't determine this on a snapshot. This is going to be determined by how things look in two months, three months, maybe even years from now. And I still think that the Swedish philosophy uh, is one that we should have given a lot more thought to in the long run. Because w- if nothing else, doing it the way Sweden is doing it might make them less vulnerable to a second wave. Come the, the following fall and winter. We just don't know yet. Other countries have done much better than Sweden. Australia, for instance, has done remarkably well with regard to their death rate. They have over 6,000 cases, just 63 deaths. That's amazing just 63 deaths in all of Australia. Mexico, which has also taken a rather laid back attitude towards this, has over 5,000 cases and just over 400 deaths. And one of the many, many frustrating aspects of this from a statistical standpoint, and, and there's an enormous political ramification to this, is this data. And I wrote a column about this, at least partially about this in media, which you can find uh, at our Twitter feed at individual one pod yesterday, about how the media is uniquely designed to only provide one side of this story. One of the eight elements of the perfect storm that makes the news media unfit to cover this story fairly is that the data is so easily cherry picked from every side. You can find almost anything you want in the data for a lot of reasons, one of which is there's an incredibly long lag between the time that a case is contracted and the time that a case becomes a final statistic, especially if that final statistic is death. It can be up to four weeks, maybe even longer than that. So therefore, this data is incredibly easy to use and manipulate for political purposes. And boy, uh, everyone is doing that. Now, In the United States, and I have been following this narrative for the last several weeks, and it becomes more and more pronounced on a daily basis, even though I get ridiculed for this, But to me right now, statistically, it's becoming more and more obvious that here in the United States, almost all of our national narrative, and this is a part of the perfect storm that makes the media very poorly equipped to handle this story fairly because they're almost all in New York City or they know people who are. But this story in in the United States is almost all about the city of New York, almost all of it, over half, as I speak, over half the deaths in the united states over half are from the greater new york city area and that's a conservative estimate because new york city's new york city has tentacles literally through the public transportation system that go even beyond just new york city northern new jersey and connecticut but i so i'm trying to be as fair as possible here but no matter how you look at the numbers this isn't cherry picking folks this is Just a a clean, hard look at the numbers. This is all from a national standpoint, not to diminish the lives of anybody uh, and and not to diminish the lives that have been lost outside of New York City. But if you're looking at how much the United States has been impacted, it is becoming more and more obvious that if New York City was even remotely in the normal range uh, of every other major city in this country. Well, not every other. There's, there's Detroit and there's New Orleans. But if you t- if New York City was statistically normal as far as cities are concerned, the, the picture here in the United States would look dramatically different. Now, there are a lot of possible explanations for this, one of which, and I don't want to make too much of this because I, I am tired of people on both sides of what I consider to be essentially conspiracy theories and they're, and they're on both sides of this, claiming that the death count is inaccurate. And there are a lot of people that are doing things that are allowing conspiracy theories to fester. The way New York is now counting deaths may be skewing things a little bit, because essentially anybody who dies now, this is almost not much of an exaggeration, but almost anybody who dies in New York City area now is considered to have died of coronavirus. So there are people who are claiming now, well, these numbers are wrong. It's an overcount. There are also people who happen to be liberals, and I find this to be disgusting, just like conservatives are saying there's there's too many people being counted. Liberals are saying somehow that there's not enough people being counted. Now, I don't know how you make that argument. When you look at the CDC recommendations, the CDC recommendations basically let you uh, think that anybody who dies, uh, especially if they fit into the demographics, they're older with with uh, existing conditions, and they and they die of, of lung issues or anything close to the flu or what have you, that's a coronavirus death according to the CDC guidelines. And and now uh, if you die at home in New York, uh, you know you're presumed to be a a, a coronavirus victim. I don't want to make too much of that again because I hate conspiracy theories and because I think in the larger scheme of things. it doesn't make that much difference to the numbers. There's no question whatsoever that New York City is dictating everything. And let me take this out of the theoretical and put this into the practicals, because I just literally, before we did the the taping of this podcast, I I jotted down some numbers. These numbers are amazing, folks. And this will, in, in very stark terms, show you just how much here in the United States, this is currently a New York City story. If you take New York state, now let's be clear. This actually skews the numbers in New York City's favor because New York state is a large state and most of the state does not have a, a huge number of coronavirus cases, but it obviously has New York City. New if you take New York state, New Jersey, which also skews the numbers in in New York City's favor because New Jersey has a southern part of the state that is not connected to New York City and you take Connecticut, which really is a suburb of New York City. If you take those three states, New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut, you have a total population of 32 million people, all right? So you take those three states that are clearly connected to New York City, 32 million people. You then take our three largest states here in the United States, California, Florida, and Texas. Now, the beauty of, the, of using those three states is one is very liberal in California, one is rather conservative in Texas, and one is mostly conservative but a little bit liberal in Florida. Two of those three states have Republican governors, California, Florida, and Texas. They comprise a population of 89 million people. So 89 million people in comparison to 32 million people for the states that are connected to New York City. So that's well over twice, almost three times the population in California, Florida, and Texas. In New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut, we currently, as of this moment, have 15,403 deaths. 15,403 deaths for 32 million people. In California, Florida, and Texas combined we have 1,731 deaths. To put this into a different calculation, in California, Florida, and Texas, one out of 51,415 people have died over the last month from coronavirus. Statistically, that is effectively nothing. That is less than would normally have died from the flu during this particular uh, period of time, or it's certainly in the ballpark, very much in the ballpark of that. But it is statistically an incredibly small number in those three giant states. If you do the same calculation in New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut, it's one in just over 2,000. People have died of coronavirus over the last month or so in those three states. So this is a huge, huge impact and story in the New York City area, and no one should diminish it. I've never diminished it. It is massive. It is a horror show there. One in just over 2000, 2077 to be exact by my calculations, essentially means that if you consider that most people in their orbit probably have, let's just round it off, probably know about 200 people, right, in your in your direct orbit, maybe give or take. If, if most people know about 200 people, that means one out of every 10 people in those three states know somebody who has died of coronavirus, give or take, rounding off the numbers. That is an enormous impact. In California, Florida, and Texas, completely different. Totally different world. Tale of two different worlds. Now, why is that significant? One, it, it, it illustrates just how important New York City here is, but it also tells a very different picture about how we should be handling this. That's why this is significant, because there's only one New York City, and nobody else is going to be like New York City. One of the many things that uh, public figures and politicians have done that have gone ignored because the media doesn't want to focus on them because they want to make certain people into heroes is the, uh, the words or are the words of Governor Cuomo, Andrew Cuomo from New York. When he did this, I immediately bookmarked it because I'm like, OK, this is this is going to look this is going to turn out to be wrong. And in a rational world, he should be held accountable for this. At the beginning of this month, I think it was April 2nd, he desperately tweeted that coronavirus was like a rolling hurricane that was going to slowly take over the entire country. And everyone was going to paraphrasing. Everyone was going to be just like New York. Now, that scared the living daylights out of a lot of people, and understandably so. It impacted an enormous number of decisions. I'm not saying his tweet. I'm saying that that concept, the concept that the whole country was going to be like New York, impacted enormous numbers of decisions throughout the country, because now everyone's batting down the hatches thinking, oh my gosh, what's happening in New York and in New York City is going to happen everywhere well, let's take a look at, at what uh, Governor Cuomo's incentives were there. Governor Cuomo is enormously invested in the idea that there was nothing he could have done in New York, that he is, he's just the first, that he's not going to be the worst, he's just the first, and that everybody else is going to be impacted just the same way. And so he has this enormous self-interest in promoting this narrative, That'll, you know, everybody else, look out. It's coming for you too. Everybody else is going to be just like New York. And I can guarantee you here in California, that has had an incredible impact on the local decision making because everyone got scared out of their minds. Well, we are now over two weeks later, and there is no sign, no sign at all, that a rolling hurricane is coming over the entire United States of America. There's some places where there's some bad storms. There are lots and lots of places where there's hardly any even clouds, including where I live north of Los Angeles. And it, but it's but we're all being treated essentially the same, which is why this is so in absurd, and nonsensical and counterproductive. Everyone is being treated as if we are either New York City or about to be New York City, and there's no logic. And there's no data to back that up. Now, I've talked a lot about California, partially because I live here, but partially because I think California is a remarkable microcosm for this entire situation. California is our largest state here in the United States. It has the largest population. It doesn't have the largest landmass, but it's a very large state from a standpoint of landmass. It's also incredibly diverse. And it is absolutely absurd that all corners of this state, much of which is incredibly rural, is all being treated as if it's Los Angeles or San Francisco. That's it, it, is, it is asinine.
1: It's just flat out ridiculous.
0: But that's the way it's working here. And, you know, one of the things that people have wondered about, and there's now apparently going to be some scientific study into this, and there's already been some about why California's numbers are so remarkably good in comparison to everybody else is the concept that maybe, just maybe, California had this before everybody else did. And I have been one of those who have said, can you please explain to me the logic that California is going to come well after New York and New York City when it comes to a massive outbreak of the coronavirus? No one has been able to explain that to me. Nobody. And so it drives me nuts when these narratives take hold that make no sense. And then when we get a new data point, no one wants to change the narrative. The narrative here in California has been, well, our uh, King Gavin Newsom, the Democratic liberal governor, uh, did such a great job of shutting us down like a day and a half before everybody else shut down. And that's why our numbers are so much better than everybody else. Really? You cannot be serious. That doesn't make any damn sense. There's no data to, mac, uh, to back it up. Uh, the, the couple of days difference wasn't going to change the world. Uh, it, social distancing, is we're seeing from the stats, is not magic. We're hoping it helps, but it's not magic. Um, but now, even the Los Angeles Times, the liberal Los Angeles Times, they, they came up with this remarkable revelation. <laughs> I found this to be hilarious. That guess what? There are signs that coronavirus was uh, in existence here in California as early as January, maybe even earlier than January. Okay, I'm totally, totally open to that idea. Uh, there is apparently a Stanford study that is starting is to, to indicate whether or not Californians might have some semblance of immunity to this because we may have already had this. I, anecdotally, I've told you on this podcast previously about people who have come to me who I consider to be credible who are totally convinced that they had this uh, at the end of last year and the beginning of this year. I don't know whether or not that's true. I I have no way of knowing but, I, but I, what I do seek is a consistent narrative that includes all the facts. So if California, as some elements of the liberal media and potentially Stanford University, is now indicating if California, which logic would dictate makes sense, if California, given its connection to China, which is extensive, had this earlier than other places, number one, Gavin Newsom doesn't get any credit for shutting down early. All right. That's number one. So so let's let's take that off the table. He didn't shut down early, he shut down late. But there's other elements of this that I find fascinating. And uh, other people off the uh, off the grid, behind closed doors who I've communicated with also find fascinating, but no one wants to talk about this publicly. Here in California. So if we had this in early January, there are a couple of things that no one wants to connect as far as, okay, why haven't we had a massive outbreak? You know what one of them is? We had an extraordinary set of circumstances in late January, early February, surrounding the death of Kobe Bryant. So here we are in Southern California. Kobe Bryant dies on January 26th. This creates an instantaneous gathering of tens of thousands of people, all of whom are hugging each other, kissing each other, staying incredibly close contact. They're doing this for weeks. It all culminates in a massive memorial service in Los Angeles with tens of thousands of people on February 24th of this year hugging, kissing, expressing condolences. We, if the logic holds here, we should have had a super-spreader set of circumstances. Not to mention, Los Angeles had its marathon in early March. So we, so if we've had this early, and social distancing is the key to everything, right? And, and this thing is so easily spread. Can someone please explain to me why Los Angeles County and Southern California is not a horror show? because we had a unique set of circumstances here that should have created a horror show. But it hasn't happened, thankfully. And it's not because Gavin Newsom is magic. It's because maybe we got lucky. Maybe there's a different strain here on the West Coast than on the East Coast, which no one wants to consider as a possibility, because how, how amazing is it that Seattle Washington recovers from an initial horrendous situation? And, and the West Coast uh, states have done much better than the East Coast states. I would suggest to you it's because we don't have New York City. And we don't have a New York City that kept its subway system open throughout this entire situation. I realize I'm using common sense, and that's dangerous. You're not allowed, you're not allowed to use common sense in this day and age. You, you must be a, a sheeple and just go with what the so-called experts tell you. But here's my problem with the so-called experts. They keep being not just a little bit wrong. They keep being totally wrong in their projections. And we had over the last week since the last episode of this podcast, one of the most dramatic examples of that yet, dealing with Dr. Fossey. Dr. Fossey, the the liberal hero in all of this. Dr. Fossey uh, had been saying two weeks ago, thereabouts, that we could lose up to 240,000 people by the summertime here in the United States of America. 240,000 people. By the way, that was if everything went well. Now, this was shocking to a lot of people. This had an enormous amount of impact enormous amount of impact on all sorts of decisions that were made across the country, and understandably so, because this is Trump's guy, right? The media, and, and I think most of the public is, is presuming that if Fosse feels like it's okay to say we might lose 240,000 people, then it might even be worse than that, because he has to worry about getting fired by Trump, because Trump doesn't want to hear that. So this projection of just a couple of weeks ago had an enormous impact. Now, I never believed that. And I told you I never believed that. Of course, I got mocked because I'm not an expert, right? Uh, you, you're not, you, you don't have no credibility unless you're, you're somehow a doctor. I would suggest that in this situation, there are no experts because we've never dealt with this before. And a lot of times, the experts are handicapped for a lot of reasons. One, because they ha- they fall in love with their own celebrity in Fosse's particular situation, but also because they're in a bubble. They're in a bubble and they're not using common sense. But the 240,000 number never made any sense to me because if you take the number of confirmed cases, even if you take the worst possible death rate, even up to 10% of, of, of deaths per confirmed cases, which is off the charts, Uh, but okay, in some areas like New York City, sometimes it can be up to 10%, at least in the short run until you figure out all the math. But even if you presume 10%, that's a number of confirmed cases that is in the stratosphere. It's more than what we would have the entire world so far a couple of months into this. So it never made any sense to me. How do you get to 240,000 people unless you can get to 2.5 million confirmed cases in that period of time? So not to mention what you're essentially saying is social distancing doesn't work, <laughs> that all what we're doing is irrelevant because you're going to have all this happen, all this carnage after we've shut down the country. How does that make any sense? So that that projection lived for about a week. And then all of a sudden, almost exactly after we did the last episode of the Individual One podcast, Fossey comes forward and says, yeah. Actually, you know what? That whole 240,000 thing that's that's probably not true, uh, and in fact, it's now looking more like uh 60,000 deaths, 60,000. You cannot be serious so so we go from two forty thousand deaths to 60,000 deaths. That's not a small difference that is that is a world of diff not to mention it's almost two hundred thousand people <laughs> i mean two hundred thousand people right off the bat that's massive, but two hundred and forty thousand people is is a catastrophe uh, of unprecedented proportions in in the modern era. Uh, and and it is a world changer and it has all sorts of ramifications. 60,000 people, well, you can't diminish it. It's a significant number. That's still within the realm of a flu season. I, I mean, so, so you're, those are two totally different worlds. So what changed in the middle? Absolutely nothing. There was nothing that changed except Fauci realized his original projections or the projections other people were doing were wrong. And the projections are always wrong in the same direction. And they're wrong for a couple of reasons. One is they're all based on this fear. This is the boogeyman of all of this, the fear of exponential growth. Oh my gosh. uh, uh, There are two terms that I have had an ass full of. Uh, One is flatten the curve, and the other is exponential growth. And people telling me on Twitter, I don't understand exponential growth. No, actually, I understand exponential growth exceedingly well, which is why I know this is a farce. Because in order to get To exponential growth. And by the way, I have enormous credibility on this because the day after Governor Newsom shut down this state based upon a projection that 56% of the state was going to get this thing within eight weeks, within eight weeks, and I proved that that was bullcrap because his entire notion of exponential growth was completely unrealistic. In order to get exponential growth over an extended period of time, what you require are two things. Number one is no one knows anything about the virus. Never heard about it. We're acting totally normally. We're breathing all over each other. Uh, We're gathering, uh, you know, in stadiums all over the place. We are not impacting our behavior at all. In fact, I would even even suggest to get to some of these numbers, we have to try, try to be uh, spreading the virus. That's number one you need, which is absurd. It's completely, absolutely. It's just flat out ridiculous. No one is ever going to do that. No one is suggesting to do that. No one. So, so just by common sense, hey, stay away from people uh, and wash your hands and don't touch your face right there. You, you eliminate exponential growth. The second part of this, and this goes back to this whole thing about California potentially having some level of immunity. By the way, I should mention there's a German study, and I trust the Germans, being of German descent myself and having a grandfather who was a rather famous German rocket scientist, a German study indicating that up to 15% of Germans are immune from this. Now, can you imagine if Germany has 15% of immunity? What's the immunity here in California? And other places, far more connected to China. But in order to get exponential growth, you need no one to be immune because that's the only way it can keep spreading, is if nobody has any immunity. So this whole boogeyman of exponential growth has been scaring the living daylights out of everybody. And it is not based in logic or common sense. And Fauci Fauci has proven that when you change your projections that dramatically in a week with nothing changing, that tells me you don't know what the hell you're doing. That tells me you're not to be believed again in the future. That tells me that there's a reason why you're wrong and it's because you're biased. And the reason why you're biased is you're a doctor. And a doctor, and this is not a bad thing, a doctor has an inherent bias towards never being wrong on the negative side, never being too optimistic, because that's the way they're trained. They're trained that every life matters, save every life possible, never be wrong in the in the overly optimistic perspective. That's who they are. By the way, let me give you a real life example of this. And this is This is rather personal to me, but I think this is an incredibly important story to illustrate from a philosophical standpoint why I have such a big problem with us trusting, and we are totally trusting. I have no problem with doctors and experts, alleged experts, having a say in what we do. But when they get to dictate totally, it's incredibly dangerous and it's flat out stupid. And here's, I think, a great story to illustrate that late, uh, early last year and, and, and into the previous year, my wife found out that she likely had cervical cancer. And because she had cervical cancer, she was recommended to have a hysterectomy. Now, you know, we had already just barely had our second kid, and so, you know, the, the idea of having more kids wasn't something that we were really thinking of doing anyway, and obviously her health came above everything else. So having the hysterectomy was, was not a big decision. I mean, it was a huge, massive problem for her and in an incredibly invasive surgery and put her out of commission, and, and you know, it's scary and all that. But from the standpoint of deciding whether to do it, there was no question, okay, we got to have this hysterectomy. We're not going to take any chances on the cervical cancer. But as part of that decision, she had to decide whether or not to keep her ovaries. Now, the cancer doctor told her, take the ovaries out because there's a chance, there's a chance that might cause cancer in the future. If, the, if, the, if you have this cancer and it spreads to your ovaries, eventually that there's a statistical chance you could get cancer again in the future. And my wife was like, oh my gosh, I got to take my ovaries out. And I said, whoa, 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 whoa. Hold on a second. If you take out your ovaries, you are going to destroy your quality of life for the foreseeable future. All to prevent a chance, a small chance of getting cancer way down the road. So she goes to her OBGYN and the OBGYN, who doesn't have the same same kind of incentives, isn't looking at this in nearly the same way as the cancer doctor is, says, no, that's stupid. Keep your ovaries because you are going to destroy your life for sure. You are ensuring that your life will be destroyed on so many different levels when you're still a fairly young person. The risk is low. Keep the ovaries. So my wife kept the ovaries and she is thrilled that she did because she knows that if she had done what the original cancer doctor said, her life would be even especially now that we're in a shutdown, it would be even worse than it currently is. And I use this example because I think it's a hell of a metaphor for what's happening here. In, in, a, in a large way, that's what the whole world and the United States of America is doing. In order to, to, uh, for, to reduce risk a very small amount... We're taking out our ovaries. We're going beyond taking out our ovaries. We're we're destroying everything about our lives. We're ensuring short-term catastrophic damage to prevent a fairly small risk uh, in the long run of this boogie monster of exponential growth. Not to mention, it also illustrates why you don't put all the power in the hands of a doctor. Doctors have an important role but dictating public policy should not be one of them now the title of this episode is that trump is struggling to get his balls back and i've talked an awful lot about how important balls are in public policy and how a lot of old white men tend to lose them over time Uh, i'm not gonna get into that Uh, but but trump's balls are incredibly important to this entire equation as a Trump critic who still loathes Trump and believes that we're in this largely because uh, of his incompetence and his underestimation of this, uh, the one thing Trump is good for is his damn balls. That's all he's good for. If he doesn't have his balls, he is completely worthless because this is the one time where we need somebody with some damn balls because we're never going to, we are never We are never going to get back anything close to normal unless somebody has the power, the incentive, and the balls to make sure that we do. He's struggling for his balls against two different forces. One of them is Dr. Fossey. Dr. Fossey has at least one of Trump's testicles in a jar. He might have both. And it's clear that Trump is frustrated by this. Trump even retweeted, although I'm not convinced that he did this knowingly. I think he's just so stupid. He didn't even look at the whole tweet, but he retweeted a tweet that ended with the hashtag fire Fossey. And this created all sorts of firestorm that, that, oh my gosh, Trump is finally going to fire the the, the liberal darling, uh, Dr. Fossey. Fossey didn't help matters when he Poured cold water all over the projected restart date of May first from a national perspective, and Fossey said, "No, that's unrealistic. We can't do it by May 1st, Even though uh, that seems to be what Trump was was shooting for, and and now we I love this. We even have uh, you know Cult Forty Five media going after Fossey because apparently uh, many years ago he sent a very praising email to among uh, among other people Hillary Clinton. He's apparently a Hillary Clinton lover. So Colt 45, the Trump cult, is now after Fossey. He's now the enemy. Uh, Oh, my gosh, he loves Hillary. This is all part of some sort of conspiracy to get uh, Donald Trump. I love the poorly educated. That's not what's happening here. I mean, I do believe that Fossey is probably a liberal, and I do not trust him, mainly because I think he's in love with his newfound fame. Uh, And then also for the reasons I already articulated about why a doctor is ill-suited to be making these kinds of incredibly important policy decisions. But there's no question that there's a battle between Fossey and Trump over Trump's balls. And I don't think that Trump should fire Fossey. I I think he should actually, speaking of the ball metaphor, uh, he he should just, uh, you know, sideline him. You know, don't fire him because if you fire him, he's on every television show every day now completely free to rip Trump all that he that he wants. He's not going to resign. He loves this position too much. He loves the power. He loves the fame. He loves the attention. He ain't quitting. So if you sideline him, he's going to put up with that. So but you don't fire him. Fire him would be the dumbest thing that Trump could do. And even though that is always uh, Trump's inclination, but Trump is going to be in a huge battle with Fosse if we're ever going to get this thing uh, back on any semblance of a track. Uh, But he's also going to be in a huge battle with governors and specifically the governor here in California, King Gavin Newsom, who is never, ever, ever ever going to reopen California, that became obvious yesterday, unless he is forced to do so. He has put forward the most nebulous criteria you could possibly imagine. That basically means we open whenever I say we open. And that's only going to change if somehow his 83% approval rating suddenly diminishes, which I don't see happening because here in California, we're a bunch of liberal sheeple uh, who have have bought into a completely bullcrap narrative and the media is totally enabling this. So speaking of Trump's balls and this battle with the governor, and not just Governor Newsom, but actually two coalitions of governors, one on the West Coast, one on the East Coast. Frankly, I think they ought to name these coalitions the coalition to reelect Donald Trump, because I think there's a very good chance that he's going to end up using these mostly Democratic, all-liberal governors as a foil and a scapegoat to explain why the economy has not come back like it would have if he had been allowed to do what he wants. But the, 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 there is an incredibly stark difference here between the Trump of Monday, where he started to get his balls back. And by the way, in a way that was probably unconstitutional. I'm not suggesting that Trump having his balls back is 100 percent a good thing. Uh, in fact, in some ways, it's incredibly dangerous. But uh, but you, you, he has to get them back. Otherwise, America will never come back. So on Monday, he gets his balls back in a huge way. Uh, Here are a couple of clips from an absolutely batshit crazy press conference that uh, Trump held where he is trying to make the case that he's the one in charge of America. He has total authority. It's not the governor's. There's two clips regarding the total authority uh, from Monday. And here's number one.
1: I'm going to put it very simply. The president of the United States has the authority to do what the President has the authority to do, which is very powerful. The President of the United States calls the shots. If we weren't here for the states, you would have had a problem in this country like you've never seen before. We were here to back them up, and we back it. We've more than backed them up. We did a job that nobody ever thought was possible. It's a decision for the President of the United States. Now, with that being said, we're going to work with the states because it's very important. You have local governments, they're pinpointed. It's really, you talk about, it's a, like a microchip. They're pinpointed. We have local government that hopefully will do a good job. And if they don't do a good job, I'd step in so fast. But no, they can't do anything without the approval of the president of the United States.
0: They can't do anything without the approval of the president of the United States. Now, everyone's a hypocrite here. Everybody, especially the, the state-run conservative media that used to be all about uh, states' rights And, uh, you know, federalism and the idea uh, that a president has limited authority over what the states can do. All that's out the window now because all the Trump supporters, people like Mark Levin, former constitutional conservative, they now are part of a cult. And so now they have to back up everything Trump says. Uh, I I was amazed that even Brett Baer of Fox News Channel uh, made the point that uh, if Barack Obama had ever said anything close to that, that uh, conservative media heads would explode. And and that's 100 percent correct. Uh, But it got worse because or better, depending on your perspective, uh, because Trump was, of course, confronted about this statement that he's in charge over the state governors. And uh, then he upped the ante. And here's what that sounded like.
1: For instance, if a governor issued a state home, when you say my authority, the president's authority, not mine, because it's not me. This is when somebody's the president of the United States, the authority is total. And that's the way it's got to be. Oh, it's total. total. It's total. It's total. And the governors total. know that. So if, a, if a The governor governors know that. Now no, you, you, you have a you couple of bands of, of, excuse me, excuse me. You have a couple. Could you rescind that order? You have a couple of bands of, uh, of uh, Democrat governors, but they will agree to it. it they will Republican agree governor? to it. But, uh, the authority of the president of the United States having to do with the subject we're talking about is total.
0: The authority of the president, the authority of the president is total
1: you cannot be serious
0: in the united states of america think about that the president's authority over the united states of america is total it's just flat out ridiculous again if barack obama had said that uh, the sean hannity's of the world uh, w- would be uh, outside of the, uh, out of the White House, although they'd be breaking uh, you know, social distancing and, and stay-at-home orders, uh, protesting on a 24-hours-a-day, uh, seven-days-a-week basis. That's just a fact. I mean, philosophically, that is the opposite of what conservatism was largely based in. Now, I realize that in an emergency situation, this is why I'm somewhat conflicted about this, especially since I want Trump to get his balls back, and he's, and he's fighting against Fosse, and he's going to be fighting against these Democratic governors in order to get those balls back. Uh, but I'm, So I'm somewhat conflicted here because in an emergency, you do need a central leader. You, you do need somebody to be able to make the ultimate call here. And so there, there, it does get a little bit nebulous. But the the uh, idea that the president has total authority is just, it's unbelievably absurd. It's just flat out ridiculous. Uh, it's not accurate. And you know who has now essentially acknowledged that it's not accurate? Tuesday's version of Donald Trump. Because here is a much more chastened and ballless Donald Trump addressing essentially the same issue, sounding like a completely different person.
1: Reopen the country are close to being finalized. And we will soon be sharing details and new guidelines with everybody. I will be speaking to all 50 governors very shortly. And I will then be authorizing each individual governor of each individual state to implement a reopening and a very powerful reopening plan Of their state at a time and in a manner as most appropriate the day will be very close because certain states as you know are in much different uh, condition and in a much different place than other states it's going to be very very close maybe even before the date of May 1st so That will be for some states. Actually, there are over 20 that are in extremely good shape. And we think we're going to be able to get them open fairly quickly, and then others will follow. The federal government will be watching them very closely, and will be there to help. Now,
0: that's less than 24 hours difference. 24 hours, he goes from the authority of the president is total to... Good luck, states. We'll be watching you. He's making it up as he goes and not. Now, I don't know whether or not someone convinced him that he doesn't really have the authority or that this wasn't going to work as a Republican president uh, and that he would lose in the courts even you know, with the conservative judges. By the way, as, as an aside, for all the Trump fans out there who keep telling us how important the courts are, And I'm someone who believes the courts are incredibly important. It's one of the best things that Trump has done in in making sure that there are conservative justices. How has that helped us in this situation at all? Where is there one example of a court stepping in to stop the insanity? This is as big of an emergency, especially for civil liberties, as we've ever had in the modern history of this country. And judges have done squat so So I would love for someone who's a Trump supporter to, to answer me that, but as, that's an aside. The, the, the more pressing issue here is that Trump has changed his mind again and seemingly lost his balls. I mean, that was a ballless Trump right there. And uh, if he really thinks that he's going to be able to trust these democratic governors, uh, he, he cannot possibly be that naive. He cannot be that naive. I have to think that part of him has made a decision. This is this is dangerous because I'm giving Trump some credit here for playing a little bit of chess, and I've always felt he's more of a checkers player or maybe in a shoots and ladders player. But but there is a chess move here. And the chess move is he's realizing he cannot save the economy by November. So if you can't get it done, your only other option is have someone to blame for why it didn't get done. And he's going to create a situation where he's going to be able to blame these coalitions of liberal Democratic governors for not doing what he wanted. And that's why our economy is still crap in November. And and I do think there's some political <clears throat> viability here because when you look at who the the worst perpetrators are, They all, I believe, help Trump. Number one, the worst perpetrator is going to be California Governor Gavin Newsom. He's not going to win California by a long shot. So therefore, he can go after Newsom all he wants. I believe that there is a growing likelihood that the November election is actually going to be more Trump versus Newsom than it will be Trump versus Biden. I believe that Trump is going to use Newsom as the poster boy for liberalism out of control, where you have a state, where you have no legitimate problems, which is still being shut down, and shut down, let's be clear, in a way that's going to impact every single American, not just because California is a huge uh, economic engine, but and I, sa- I know this is going to sound trivial, but Gavin Newsom is going to shut down the National Football League. And when he shuts down the National Football League, that's going to have implications throughout the country. And by the way, it's, it's if he shuts down the National Football League, it probably means college football is also toast. So if Gavin Newsom single-handedly, and we've got three National Football League teams here in California, and Newsom has already made it clear he's going to fight like hell to keep them from being able to play. If Newsom shuts down the NFL and he shuts down football, guess what? You have just created for yourself a massive political opportunity for Donald Trump one that's incredibly ironic since he's been an enemy of the National Football League for decades but i can see a a Trump NFL coalition here where where Gavin Newsom becomes the bad guy and he becomes the poster child for what happens if Trump loses and that's going to scare the living daylights out of a lot of Americans. And now you look at the key states here and you look at Michigan, which has a governor, Democratic governor, completely out of control. You have Pennsylvania, a Democratic governor, completely out of control. That's going to play into Trump's hands as well in both of those states. Now, there are there's still Wisconsin he's got to win. And this past week in Wisconsin, a Democrat won a state Supreme Court seat that no one thought was going to happen uh, in a way that indicates that Wisconsin ain't buying what Trump is selling. And if Trump loses Wisconsin, he's got to come up with something else. But right now, even though this looks really dire for him in a lot of ways, I think that there is a scenario here where, as usual... The liberals overplay their hand. Democrats go crazy in Michigan and Pennsylvania to the point where Trump's base says enough is enough. They come out for him just as much or more than they did in 2016. And he wins those two states again, meaning he's still within the, a very close opportunity to win an election against a very weak opponent in Joe Biden. Now, a lot of things have to go Trump's way here. And one of the things is he's got to get his balls back. He has to get his balls back or 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 he's going down and we're all going down because we have now set up in this country a standard for reopening that is completely unrealistic. This idea that somehow we can't have normal life unless everything is totally safe is absurd. It's just flat out ridiculous. And it wasn't the deal. This is where I see another emerging narrative here. They're changing the deal. The deal was flatten the curve so that our hospital system, our healthcare system will be able to endure the surge. We can buy time to get ready and and, and over the long haul, we will save as many lives as we can there. That was the deal. Do this for a month or two, we will flatten the curve and uh, we'll do. We'll make the best of a horrendous situation, and maybe, just maybe, we'll get lucky with some sort of medical discovery. Well, that hasn't apparently happened yet. There's still people who think that it has, but there's no 100% proof of that yet. Uh, so, so we we did our part of the deal, especially here in California. We have flattened the curve almost too much to the point where I think we're now vulnerable to getting it again later on. But we did nationwide everywhere other than in New York City and a couple of other small places, the curve has been flattened. We've given time for the healthcare system to prepare. We never made the deal that we were going to stop all life until all risk was gone. That was not the deal. The deal was flatten the curve. This all feels like a bait and switch. Bait and switch. Just do this for a month or two. We'll flatten the curve. This is gonna be horrible, but we'll do the best we can. Now, all of a sudden, no, 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 no. We can't do real life, anything close, anything close to normal life, until all risk is eliminated. That's absurd. That is completely absurd. You cannot be serious. And it is a recipe for destroying not just the American way of life. But life throughout the world, because let's face it, a lot of the world is going to take its cues from what happens in the United States of America. One other point about things going in Trump's direction, that Democrats are, are too naive to understand. I warned you about this weeks ago when I talked with the Congressman John Yarmuth, my friend who's the Democrat, the head of the Budget Committee. And he, he didn't seem to take this all that, that seriously, although he did say that it was a possibility. Well, it now appears as if, lo and behold, Donald Trump is going to get his name on the Corona checks. So throughout the country, millions and millions of adults are going to get checks for twelve hundred dollars each, plus money for their children with the name Donald Trump on the check. Correct. I'm sorry. That has a huge political impact. Correct. He, I mean, I'm not suggesting it's necessarily direct. Some of it's subconscious, but I'm sorry. There's never been a president in our history that has been allowed to give cash in his name to millions of voters deep into an election year. It's unbelievable. But Democrats have somehow allowed this to happen. And Trump is doing it. Trump is doing it. In a way that apparently, at least according to the Washington Post, is going to delay those checks going out. We're better than that. It's unbelievable. It's just flat out ridiculous. But this is where we are. Trump is going to use this to every possible advantage. And we are giving him a lot of advantages when it comes to his potential reelection. Now, there are other things that are going to hurt him. There's no question that things are going to hurt him. There's signs his approval rating for his handling of the coronavirus is going down, as it should, because he blew it. The numbers show it. When our numbers are worse than everybody else in the whole world, although they're not on a per capita basis, but perception is reality, that's going to leave a mark. There's other things that are going to hurt him as well. I'll tell you, and and this has been talked about a little bit, but I don't think enough. He's not going to be able to hold any campaign rallies, and that's going to hurt him from a psychological standpoint. It's also going to hurt his cult because It's not going to impact whether his cult votes for him. But from a morale standpoint, those people need reinforcement. They need the experience of going to see their cult leader and being able to see firsthand that they're not alone. That there's all sorts of other people in their community that also wear the red hat and still believe just as mightily in their cult king, Donald Trump. I love the poorly educated. They're not going to be able to do that. And that's going to have a much more negative impact on the Trump campaign than on the Biden campaign. The Biden campaign is probably thrilled they're not going to be able to do rallies because their rallies are nothing but an opportunity for disaster because he's terrible at rallies and his crowds aren't going to be that large. So the elimination of rallies is a huge, huge benefit to Joe Biden and a negative towards Donald Trump. So I still do do not believe that Donald Trump is a favorite for reelection. But I do think he has a shot. And I think that shot is legitimate and it's slightly increasing. Now, the stock market is taking another dump today at last look. I think that's partially because they, they now worried that Trump has completely lost his balls. Plus, all the economic data is horrendous. Uh, so I'm I'm not suggesting that uh, you know, Trump is on some sort of a ride to imminent reelection. But I'm going to keep that percentage uh, right around 30 percent. So a 30 percent chance officially. Uh, for Donald Trump's re-election as of this day in April, April 15th, 2020. That'll do it for this episode of the Individual One podcast. We're only uh, taping as of right now. Now, this could change in either direction very quickly in this very bizarre world. We're taping these once a week right now on Wednesdays, Wednesday morning. Los Angeles, California time. So please keep that in mind. And please remember to subscribe, rate, review, and share this podcast via social media. Follow us on Twitter at individual, the number one pod. That's at individual, the number one pod. Until next time, my name is John Ziegler. You're listening to the Global Story Network.